You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Ending at verse 29, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the things that's kind of on my bucket list that I would really like to do at some point uh, before I leave this world is I'd love to see Istanbul. It's an amazing city, as you probably know. It finds itself... Um, in between two worlds. It's, it's at the place where the continents of Europe and Asia join. It's a city of history and commerce and, and all races and creeds are there in that place. Um, once it was Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire. It's an incredible and amazing place. And a lot of that stems from the fact that it is a place of diverse cultures because it sits between two worlds. It also sits between or on the joint between two of the vast plates that support the continents on the surface of our earth. And as those plates move against each other, as they do, it creates earthquakes. And so it's, Istanbul is a place which frequently is beset by earthquakes. The last one to take place took place in 1999. And in that earthquake, 17,000 people died and hundreds of buildings were toppled. So this is a devastating reality for the city of Istanbul. Over 1,500 years ago, one of the most magnificent structures ever built that still to this day has the largest unsupported dome in the world was completed. The building has been a Muslim mosque. It is presently a museum, 
But when it was finished in AD 537, it was, as its name suggests, a Christian church situated in what was then Constantinople, the center of the known world. The name of the building is Hagia Sophia. And through all the earthquakes of the centuries, the shaking of cultures and history and the earth itself, Hagia Sophia has stood and not fallen. And Hagia Sophia is a parable, if you like, a Christian church in an earthquake city that has not fallen in the 1500 years since it was constructed. It is a parable because the writer to the Hebrews says of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. To be in Christ is like being in Hagia Sophia, the unshakable kingdom. And that's an important place to be. It's an important place to be because whenever the Lord draws near, there is a shaking. Writing to Jewish Christians in the latter part of which we read a moment or two ago, the, the author reminds the readers of what happened to their forebearers at Sinai. He says, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. When they got there, the rumblings, the smoke, um, uh, 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 the voice that spoke, they were petrified. Everyone was shaking. The mountain was shaking. The people were shaking. Even Moses was shaking. Now, I don't know what the Israelites thought they would experience when they met the God that came to Egypt to rescue them. But whatever they expected, it was shaken to pieces at Sinai. They had come to what the writer to Hebrews describes as a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. It was a scary place. But we don't have to cope with that. You have come, the author says, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to the presence of God, all right. But the place that you have come to is a place of joy and forgiveness. Thousands upon thousands of angels in festal assembly and to the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What on earth does that mean? Well, you remember the story of Cain and Abel in the early books of the Old Testament, how Cain killed his brother Abel and he buried the body and he hid it and thought that nobody would know what he had done. But God knew and God came and met him and God says to him, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. You buried him, you thought you hid it, but his blood is speaking to me and it speaks a word of vengeance and judgment. But that is not what the blood of Jesus speaks. In the way that the blood of Abel cried from the ground, the blood of Jesus calls to the Father for your forgiveness and mine. 
we have come to a place of joy and forgiveness. But God is still here. And so the place will shake. It's the nature of who he is. You know, in, in Jurassic Park, in the, first, in the first movie, okay, if you remember that, and in the middle of the movie, they've seen most of the massive animals in the park. But at one point, they're stuck and the ground starts to shake. And there's that kind of, the camera kind of homes in on a footprint in the ground and the water in the footprint is shaking because the T-Rex is on its way. I love that part in the film, okay? And, and you know that he's coming because the place is shaking. You can see it, you can feel it, you can hear it. And where the Lord comes, there is a shaking. Everything begins to shake. In Acts chapter four, tells the story of, of the disciples who had been arraigned before um, the courts because of what they'd been preaching and doing and, and it had been a tough time for them and they had been released and they came back to their friends and they gathered together, it says, and, and instead of doing what you thought they might have done, which was you might have gathered together and said, well, we got away with that. We need to be a wee bit more careful in the future. Not a bit of it. They gathered for worship and they praised God and then they prayed. And in their prayers, they asked not for the protection of God. They asked God for boldness so they could go out and talk even more loudly about Jesus and even more effectively about him in the marketplace. And it says when they asked the Lord to come and give them boldness to testify to Jesus, the house that they were praying in was shaken. I know that Ken Harvey and those involved in the maintenance of our church properties would be horrified at this, but I just wish between seven and eight on Friday morning, our buildings shook. Because where God is, that's what happens. And he is going to shake so much more than a building where his people gather. That's what the text says. At that time, his voice shook the earth. That's at the mountain. And at Sinai, when the Israelites gathered, he shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. God doesn't just intend to shake a few buildings. He intends to shake everything to see what is unshakable. Are you worried about a border down the Irish Sea? I can assure you that that is the least of your worries. Jesus is going to shake the whole creation to see what will stand at the last. And in the light of that, what should you do? The text says two things, really simple. The first thing the text says is, in the light of the fact that it is God's intention to shake the whole fabric of creation at the last, you need to listen. You need to listen we are talking here about the biggest danger that faces every single person sitting in this building right now. No disease, no debt, no betrayal, no unemployment, no Holocaust will be as potentially devastating to your life as this reality that we're talking about right now. 
And so the writer to the Hebrews says to us, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. The writer to the Hebrews here is not just talking about hearing, he's talking about listening. And listening is not an automatic function of hearing. My wife says that over the years of raising a family, I have developed an incredible ability to hear what my children say, but to pay absolutely no attention to it. I am hearing, but I am not listening. My mind is away doing something else altogether, and she's the one that has to do the listening. It's not automatic. We hear stuff, but it doesn't mean we actually listen when we're hearing. And at the mountain that day, at Sinai, were a whole generation of people who lived through the signs and wonders of the Exodus. They saw the sky dark in the capital city of Egypt and light in their own homes. They saw the river turn to blood. They saw the seas part. They walked on the dry ground. They drank the water from the rock and ate the manna from the desert floor. And yet not a single one of them made it to Canaan. Not one. Because they heard, but they didn't listen. God said, this is my land for you. This is my reward. And they looked at it and they thought it's too big for us and they turned away. And not one of them, not one of them made it to Canaan. They were hearing, but they were not listening. I was away last week at a, Christine and I were away at a conference for ministers and their wives and, and uh, there was a minister there who I knew by name, but I didn't really know that well. His name is Hiram Higgins. It's a name, once you've heard it, you never forget. And, um, but we met him at, and it so happens now that he's a minister in, in, in the church that I, I once served in. And um, we were sitting with him at, the, at lunch or breakfast, I can't remember which one day, and, and he told me his story. And his story was that, that he grew up in North Belfast with Lawrence Scott. Lawrence Scott was one of his best friends growing up as a boy. And he, and he said, I, I, I cannot verify this, he said Lawrence and him were a pair of lads. I, I'm sure you understand what he meant by that. Um, he said they used to drink together in the Times Bar before Lawrence owned the bar and all the rest of it. And eventually Hiram left Belfast and went to Africa with his wife to work. And uh, he worked in mining originally. It was hard work. And then eventually he was, he was a good worker. He was good at what he did. And he, he, he gained promotion. And then finally he became a public official working in, in the civil service in South Africa. And every year he ran a marathon, um, which apparently still goes on in the particular part of South Africa where he was. Um, and uh, he said, I don't know that he was a great marathon runner. I'm kind of looking at the build that he has now and I'm thinking, no, you're definitely not designed to be a marathon runner. But anyway, he ran a marathon and, and so he would usually be towards the end of the field and, and he'd run it for three or four years and somebody said to him before he started the marathon this year, make sure you don't fall in with a bunch of runners called spirit wind because he said they're a bunch of religious nutcases and 26 miles is an awful long time to have to live listen to somebody going on about religion. So make sure you don't go anywhere near them. So Harm said that as he was running, he eventually kind of, he kind of moved back towards the back of the field. And one of the dreaded spirit wind runners came and ran with him for miles and miles. And they got into conversation as they ran. 
And he said some things that this guy said just really resonated with his heart. And he said, I went home that night. I got showered and changed. I got down beside my bed and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Within a matter of months, he was out of the civil service into ministry training. He went to a really, really um, distant part of South Africa, working um, out in the wilds in the middle of nowhere with all sorts of incredible wild animals around him and all the rest of it, where he worked until he finally came back to Northern Ireland. His whole life was changed because on that marathon, he stopped hearing and he started listening. Something happened. He responded to what God said to him through this runner who was running beside him in the race. Another one of my colleagues was telling me a story about him that I didn't know. When he was a child, he said, growing up at home with his family, anybody had ever asked him what he was going to be when he grew up, he said he was going to be a preacher. And when he was a young teenager, he gave his life to Christ and he was a kind of enthusiastic Christian for a while, but then it all went cold and he kind of drifted away and he fell in with a bunch of guys from school and and so the inevitable thing happened that, that he started messing around and didn't bother too much with studying. And so the reality was his A-level results came in. All the rest of his friends got to university and he, he, his A-level results totally bombed. And, and the offer that he had, he couldn't take up. And he didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, he was completely alone. All his friends were going off to do other things and he was completely isolated and alone. He didn't know what to do. And God spoke to him and he listened gave his life back to Christ. Within a fortnight of that time, he was at university studying theology to enter the ministry. What about you? How many times have you heard the gracious invitation of the Lord? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, it's time to listen. Not just to hear, but to listen. Maybe for the very first time to experience that movement in your heart that comes from the voice of God. You know that he's speaking to you. This is you that Jesus is referring to. Or, or maybe you're like that other friend of mine. You know that if you think back to your childhood, you were so enraptured with Jesus and with the church and with the things of God. It was just a normal part of your everyday life and you loved him and, and you envisaged that he would be there and that you would be there to walk with him and follow him for the rest of your days. And that's a long, long time ago. And your life is barren and cold and empty and you have no clue where you stand with reference to him now. You need to listen. You need to listen. This is a moment, an opportunity to respond to Jesus' gracious invitation. If everything is going to be shaken, we need to be in the unshakable kingdom. And to be in that unshakable kingdom, we need to listen to the loving invitation of our Savior. But the second thing we need to do is to worship. What do they do in the unshakable kingdom? 
The writer to the Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The unshakable kingdom is a place of worship. After this I looked, John says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is something about Jesus that calls the heart to worship. You can't help yourself. There's just something about him that draws it from you. There was not a rougher man in all 18th century England than John Newton. I don't know about you, but I, I, I cannot get my head around how it could possibly be the case that a man could drive a lorry around half of Europe knowing that men, women, and children were dying in the back of it but that's who John Newton was. He didn't drive lorries. He was a sea captain and he ran the boats that plied between Africa and the New World with slaves on board. And they died in their hundreds and thousands on the ships before they got to a life of misery when they got to the other side of the Atlantic. And that's what he did. That's who he was. And then it all changed at some point in his life, he was shaken to the core of his being and he heard and then he listened to God for the very first time. And he, he opened his heart and everything about John Newton was changed. And this hard man, after his life was changed, wrote these words. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, drives away his fear. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Till then, I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath, and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. These are the words of a hard man, hard as nails, transformed by the grace and love of Christ so that he could write words like that, so that he could say that, that the name of Jesus was like music in his dying ears. Wow, what is that? That's worship, that, that's what happens. That's what flows from us when we open our hearts and give our lives to Christ. My colleague who had worked in Africa for a couple of years, or for more than a couple of years, said he had now come back to work in a church here, the same church in Northern Ireland in a way he'd never seen it before because when he last lived in Northern Ireland he wasn't interested in church. Now he comes back as a minister working in a local parish. And he said, there's a couple of things that I've observed. He said, I, I would make it compulsory for every student for the Christian ministry to have to go to Africa for two years. Well, that would have finished me. Like, I'd have been home in six weeks when the Mars bars ran out. But I think everybody, he said, should go to Africa for two years. And here's why. He said, first of all, if they went to Africa for two years, he says, they would see people who are real Christians and not people who are just keeping up religious appearances. 
It would see people who actually love Jesus and who live their lives for his glory, not just keeping up religious appearances. And he said, for the first time in their lives, they would experience real worship. The Africans know how to worship. And that's the thing. That's the thing. The writer here ends with a quotation. He says, our God is a consuming fire. And we see that expression sometimes as a sort of threat, you know, that, oh dear, God's gonna destroy us all together. And, and there is that implication there, but it would be better if we understood that phrase more fully than that. Because what that phrase is really saying is that mediocre worship is not worship at all. Because what we tend to do in our context is we treat God the way we treat someone in authority in the world. In other words, we don't want to get on the wrong side of them, but we're not going to give them carte blanche. So people who have authority in the world, we respect them, yeah, okay, but we're not going to, like, we're not going to give them absolute control. We're never going to accept that they're everything they say they are. We're too sensible to be that naive. And sometimes, and in some ways, that's how we treat the Lord. We think that it's okay to kind of respect him or whatever, but uh, at the same time, not to get too excited and worked up about it. And I'm sorry, but that's not worship. And that's not how Paul saw it. At the end of one of his most complex and comprehensive theological sections in all of his writings, which comes in the, to, uh, uh, over halfway through his letter to the Romans, he talks one of his most complex arguments about the purposes of God amongst the people of Israel and in the world of his generation. And he comes to the end of this really complex section where we see on display the wonder of the theological mind of Paul. And at the end of that section, he says this, for, talking about Jesus, for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's worship. That's the God who is a consuming fire. Paul says, he took everything that I had from him, through him, and for him. It's everything, and that includes me. My whole life, my whole ambition, all that I have, all that I will be, all that I ever wanted to be, from him, through him, for him forever. Amen. That's worship. Robert Robinson was 22 years old when he wrote the hymn that we frequently sing in church, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I'm sure at 22 years of age, a lot of older people thought, well, this is a terrible thing to be somebody so young writing hymns and probably didn't like the hymn and definitely didn't like the tune when he wrote it. He was only 22 but in that hymn, he says something you probably wouldn't expect a 22-year-old to say. A 22-year-old with his life in front of him, all the possibilities and so on, and considering the fact that as a Christian, he could invest that life in the unshakable kingdom and in the glory of Jesus and of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, you'd be thinking that what he'd be thinking about was what he was gonna do with all these years that lay in front of him. He finishes him, his hymn with a verse that we don't usually sing, and this is what the verse says. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. 
clothed in, in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. I want to be in the unshakable kingdom and I want to be in it now. For from him and through him and for him are all things. Amen. God is going to shake everything that there is. Throughout the whole of the fabric of creation, he is going to shake it all. And what will remain at the last when Jesus returns is just that which cannot be shaken, that which is in the unshakable kingdom. And what do you need to be to be in the unshakable kingdom? You need to listen. You need to respond to what God is saying. Not just hear it, not just allow it to kind of enter your ears and then that's that. Like you may have done a thousand times before, but you need to listen. Men and women, you need to listen today, right now. And having listened and opened your heart to the kingdom of joy and forgiveness, then you need to give your life to worship for from him and through him and to him are all things forever. Amen. The unshakable kingdom. Are you in it?